May I start? Good afternoon, welcome. Uh, it's a big crowd at the end. So, uh, good afternoon everybody. I'm Andrea Montanino, uh, the director of the Global Business and Economics Program. And on behalf of John Herbst, the director of the Dino Patricio Eurasia Center, I'm delighted to have all of you here today uh, for this uh, timely report. Uh, European Union, United States, as you know, um, imposed economic sanctions uh, during 2014 to Russia in response to the annexing of Crimea and in having Russia taking part of the armed conflict in eastern Ukraine. Um, uh, early this month, uh, European Council President Donald Tusk uh, said he thinks the European Union will extend the sanctions uh, against Rus Russia when they expired. But however, uh, Donald Tusk also cautioned that it may be harder to preserve uh, transatlantic unity uh, on this issue after President-elect Trump takes office, uh, given his comments on, on Russia and, and President Putin. And also an anti-sanction mood is, is mounting in Europe. Uh, and I would say much is about economics. Um, looking at Europe, exports uh, from European Union countries to Russia dropped significantly in the last two years, 2014-2015. Uh, it was minus 13.6% in 2014, was minus 17.4% in 2015 as a consequence of the contraction of the Russian economy. Uh, likely three quarter of this contraction is due to the lower oil, oil prices, but probably at least one quarter of, of the contraction of the Russian economy is due to economic sanctions. And having uh, farmers or small businesses uh, suffering in EU countries uh, because they do not export anymore uh, to Russia do not help politicians to push forward arguments for, uh, for sanctions. And what we have seen now, what we are experiencing now in Europe, where high-level politicians in Greece, Czech Republic, Hungary, Slovakia have re-emphasized the economic arguments for sanction relief, even within the German government, the Social Democrats, uh, the junior party in the government, uh, are, uh, are stepping up their support for softening sanctions. And uh, uh, the primary victory uh, by François Fillon in France uh, indicates that also France might um, push a, a closer relation with, uh, with Russia after, after the vote. And then on this, on this side of the Atlantic, uh, Trump's goals to reshape the relationship between the United States and Russia makes it less clear the future of sanctions. So uh, it's clearly uh, a timely discussion. Probably it's time to uh, step back and look at how sanctions are working. And we are very happy and delighted to have uh, Dr. Alika Ali Katschenko with us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. So I would call him Sergei. Yeah, it's easier for me. Yeah, sure. uh, Sergei is, uh, is the author of the report that uh, has been distributed. He's a non-resident senior fellow for global economy and development at the Brookings Institution. Prior to this role, he served as Deputy Minister of Finance of the Russian Federation in charge of budgetary planning and taxation and as the first chairman of the Central Bank uh, of Russia. He has also uh, a distinguished career in the private sector uh, as President and CEO of Merrill Lynch uh, Russia. Uh, before giving the floor to Sergei that will present the, the report, uh, let me remind uh, that if you want to tweet, use please the hashtag Russia Factor. 
Russia factor uh, when you tweet. Uh, and then, of course, we'll have a panel discussion with our uh, panelists. But uh, so far, uh, Sergey, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you. And I would like to start with uh, uh, thanking all of you for coming here to listen for our discussion. And second, I would like uh, to thank Atlantic Council. First, they initiated this report and they provided me tremendous support in all aspects, starting from research, translation, editing, because when I read what I have written, it's tremendous English, so it's not my English, <laughs> but it's really <laughs> tremendous. Not, I, I, I have to agree with everything that's written, but it's, it's something like Lev Tolstoy. Yeah? And uh, thank you, thank you, uh, John. It's really, it's really important for me, and the whole team did uh, their job perfect. Uh, I'm not going to talk a lot. I will try to limit myself by 10 minutes and to uh, share with you conclusions of uh, my uh, report or my research. I dedicated, let's say, several weeks and the whole summer, in fact, uh, to this uh, job, trying to understand how <coughs> sections are structured, organized, when they are imposed, and how do they work, or work the, do they work at all. And uh, as all of you know, sanctions were imposed uh, on, not on Russia, but on Russian banks and companies and individuals. So no sanctions touched Russia as a country as a result of Russian aggression ag against Ukraine. And uh, the, idea, the idea of sanctions was uh, to demonstrate the unity of the West that such a policy, aggressive policy, uh, is not acceptable in the current world, in the 21st century. Uh, the idea of the sanctions was to uh, impose uh, economic costs on Russia, uh, saying that, okay, uh, we, we cannot prevent these sanctions, we are not going to use military factor, we are not going to use military force against, against Russia because of your invasion of Ukraine, but we will try to make life as expensive for you, the economy as difficult for you as we can, and, of course, finally, there was a target to drive as a final goal, maybe the most important goal of sanctions was to change Russian attitude towards Ukraine and to end the conflict in the east of Ukraine. But, and finally, finally, uh, it, uh, to demonstrate the unity of the West, saying, okay, the EU and the US, it's a common position shared by Canada, New Zealand, Australia, so it's a unified position of the uh, civilized world. Uh, finally, sanctions were linked uh, to the implementation of Minsk Agreement, saying that sanctions may be removed uh, uh, as soon as the whole uh, set of agreements signed in Minsk will be uh, uh, fulfilled. Uh, did sanctions uh, work? The answer is yes and no. The answer is yes and no, and as usual, life is not black or white. Black is somewhere in shades, some gray. And definitely, uh, the sanctions worked demonstrating the Western unity. In the appendix of this, uh, to this report, you may see a table. It's not a mistake. There are two pages. One is U.S. sanction, another European. And you may uh, uh, look on the calendar. So all sanctions were imposed with the same schedule. All sanctions were pre-agreed in timing. So it was coordinated policy that is very important uh, in uh, uh, demonstrating to the Russian leadership that sanctions is a common approach of the West towards Russia. Uh, second, uh, sanctions did make some job in economics. Uh, sanctions were designed perfectly. So I applaud to the team that designed the economic part of the sanctions, mostly financial sanctions, because by that time, uh, they, when they were introduced in July, August 2014, the uh, inventors, authors of economics, financial sanctions, they envisaged a six-month period. And they have envisaged that by the end of the year, 
Russian banks and companies, Russian private sector, should repay tremendous amount of the foreign debt. It, in the last quarter of 2014, first quarter of 2015, the amount of scheduled repayment on schedule was approximately 10% of GDP. And so in this particular situation, just imposing a ban on to raise new capital in the Western market was very influential factor, was a very strong measure. Of course, I, I do not anticipate that uh, the West, uh, either in the White House or in the Brussels, they were able to uh, preview and forecast, uh, foresee the decline in oil prices that combine uh, precisely the second half of 2014. But altogether, that, that uh, created a financial collapse in, in, Russian, uh, in Russian markets and ruble collapsed in mid-December. But afterwards, oil prices started to recover, and by now, this factor is, is not very influential. Uh, if you compare the relative pressure of uh, financial sanctions that Russia need to repay foreign debt ca compared with the losses of Russian economy because of decline in oil prices is something like one to five. So on average, a Russian economy should repay no more than $10 billion per quarter, while if you compare proceeds from a export of oil and gas and refineries with what Russia had in uh, 2013, for example, the decline is $50 billion per quarter. So that's the magnitude. And if we discuss what is affecting Russian economy, economy mostly, if, of course, not, not sanctions, but oil price. Uh, but uh, saying, saying all that, uh, I, I have to say, I have to uh, make very important statement that the strongest fact of, the strongest out of economic sanctions were the sanctions that were not written. So the sanctions that were not declared. Uh, imposing sanctions on Russia, all set of sanctions, including individual, uh, increased, significantly increased political risk for Western businessmen to r make business in Russia. <coughs> so uh, any businessman making a decision have economic risks and political risks and measuring them. And nowadays, the political risk, uncertainty of doing business in Russia is so high that virtually it banned any investment, any foreign investment to Russia. And investment is not about money only. It's about capital, it's about human capital, it's about technology, it's about know-how. And this created uh, the lack of access to modern technology for the Rust Russian economic development. And combined with isolationist isolation, isolation intentions of Mr. Putin and his government that promote the policy of import-substitution, they would like to invest budgetary funds into sectors that will produce technologies that are similar to Western technologies that are produced today or Western technologies that were invented 10 years ago. That may be the most strongest factor that will affect Russian economy if sanctions are maintained for, let's say, for another decade. So if for 10 years Russian economy will, will face the same ban on access to Western technological achievements, to Western technology, to Western cap, uh, human capital, that means that the gap in the technological development will increase and Russia will be definitely outside of the global process and Russia will be out of the global economy and the, the growth rate in Russian economy will be well below the average for the global world. Uh, the very important part of uh, uh, analyzing sanctions was my uh, attempt to look on what is the effect of Russian counter-sanctions on the European Union. Definitely there is a strong pressure, there is a strong pressure in Europe among the businessmen who are saying that Europe is paying a lot. European business is paying a lot. European business is suffering. We, we lose jobs, we lose profits, but it's not fair. 
It's not fair because evidently Russian sanctions, Russian, uh, Russian counter sanctions, they are concentrated in very narrow sector. It's in, only in food and products and fishery. Uh, the overall loss, the overall decline in the export of this uh, sector, from this sector, of this group of products to Russia, was $6 billion. And, of course, as was uh, rightly mentioned, uh, the, this combined with a decline in uh, Russian export proceeds and decline in overall import to Russia. So, but even if we attribute all $6 billion that were declined in pro food and alimentary to Russia, to Russian counter-sanctions, uh, in 2015, the overall export of European Union outside the EU area of this group was $5 billion more than in, 2016, in 2013. That means that Russian uh, European agricultural sector did not suffer a lot. The overall export, the overall export of European Union outside EU in this particular group increased. Which countries suffered the most? Definitely there are four countries. It's Finland and three Baltic countries. Uh, in all of these countries, the export uh, to Russia in uh, the export to Russia declined by more than 30 percent. But none of these countries complain. None of these countries say we have to remove sanctions because of losses of our business. All other the, the, the only one other country that has declined in the export in elementary product uh, export uh, to Russia is Poland. Uh, that is a very important uh, country uh, both in both mutual trade, but they, 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 their decline is 4% only. So it's a myth. It's a myth that European business is suffering. It's not fair. Yes, they, have no, they cannot invest more. They, have no, they cannot earn more profits because of new investment. They were enforced to cut some of the investment projects, but it was not the result of the sanctions. It was the result of what I call political risks. And uh, the final, the final part of the report is, uh, I uh, call it a question, I call it a choice. Why, what, what, what is important with sanctions? Why, why do the West, uh, with a new U.S. administration, should look carefully on the sanctions? Sanctions is an instrument of foreign policy. And the biggest question is, uh, do they work? Do they enforce Russia to change its aggressive policy? The answer is no. Definitely Russia has not changed its policy, and my argument that the, uh, uh, no further escalation of military aggression of Russia in Ukraine is not a result of sanctions, it's a result of logistics. Uh, Russia has occupied a rather small piece of Ukrainian territory that in fact is the size of European countries like Montenegro or Israel. Uh, and they have uh, occupied the very important logistical point, the Balsava, that allows railways from Donetsk to Lugansk. And that's it. It's enough. There is no reason to occupy another, let's say, five or 10,000 square kilometers because it does not add anything to Russia. Uh, the, that means that the West has to answer the question. Do we, accept, do we accept that sanctions do not work? And if yes, if, yes is if, the, if the West is ready to accept this position, that means sanctions may be removed gradually or maybe, uh, or may become the part of a new deal with Mr. Putin on something. So on exchange, as a zero-sum game, the West will gradually remove sanctions. Putin will give up something, but not Ukraine, but not Ukraine. Or, or the West believes that if we have imposed sanctions, sanctions should demonstrate their effectiveness. For example, like in case of Iran, Iranian sanctions were, were gradually escalated, and uh, if I if I am asked uh, to compare Iranian sanctions with Russian one, I will say that Russian sanctions are no more than 5% uh, 
as heavy as Iranian sanctions. So there is a huge, huge way to escalate sanctions until they reach, reach Iranian level. And in the conclu conclusion of this report, I have uh, provided a set of potential sanctions that may be analyzed and discussed as a new actions of the West. So the answer will be done one way or another. It may be an official answer or it may be an unofficial answer, but the West should demonstrate its position, either accept Russian aggressive policy or not. Thank you. So good afternoon. Uh, my name is Lynn Barry, and I've been asked to moderate this very fine panel. And uh, let me very briefly introduce them. Um, to Sergey's left is David Alfhauser. He's a partner at Williams & Connolly, a law firm he first joined in 1977. Uh, and then he left the firm in 2001 to serve as general counsel to the Treasury Department, where among many, many other responsibilities, he supervised the implementation of Treasury's economic sanctions program. Um, and to his left is Elizabeth Rosenberg. She is a senior fellow and the director of the Energy, Economics, and Security Program at the Center for New American Security. From 2009 to 2013, she also served at the Treasury <coughs> Department as a senior advisor to the, and I have to read this part, the Assistant <coughs> Secretary for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, and then to the Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. And then, of course, um, John Herbst, uh, the director of, of the Eurasia Center, uh, served for 31 years as a foreign, foreign service officer, including as ambassador to Ukraine and Uzbekistan. Um, I would like to start off with, uh, the, I guess, the central question raised by the report, but also what Sergei just um, suggested, the, the question of whether we accept that the sanctions do not work and just looking at whether they have had any, um, any impact on, on Russia's actions in Ukraine. Uh, and I think when you, if you start with that, then you can move on to the question of whether the U.S. and the U EU should extend or strengthen the sanctions, and if so, so how. Um, so, I mean, the, re the report makes the point that according to conventional wisdom, um, the financial sanctions, particularly in the summer, were key to, to, um, to Putin's decision not to escalate the, the conflict. And my understanding in the summer and fall of 2014 was that the U.S. made very clear um, you know, to Russia that if they moved on Mariupol, and tried to establish the land corridor that the sanctions would be very, very severely strengthened. And as we see, the Putin didn't move. Um, but then we also had the Baltzava, right, which came directly before the, the Minsk II. After. Immediately well, after. But Immediately took, after, three days after Minsk II. The, the decision, but the pressure on the Baltzava yeah, up until so Minsk was very, very strong. So yeah. Putin went into those negotiations from a position of strength um, as he had done with the first round. And so we see that he's wanting to negotiate from, you know, from a position of strength with boots on the ground. So I guess my question, and, and John, I'm hoping you can um, address this, is you know, did, did the sanctions in any way deter Russian aggression? Um, or would Putin have done exactly what he did? Did he you know, not go on Mariupol for other reasons, and did he just move forward as he wanted to? works. Okay. 
Uh, I agree with Sergey that sanctions have not persuaded Mr. Putin to cease his aggression in the east of Ukraine. But I think if you look carefully at Russian policy on a, say, weekly basis, a monthly basis in 2014 and in the late summer, early fall of 2014, you see that Putin would adjust his tactics in order to keep violence to a certain level to avoid sanctions being implemented. And then we saw it later to try and avoid sanctions being renewed. So they have had some impact, although not as much. We know this, and this is very important. Sanctions have cost the Russian economy 1 to 1.5% of GDP, according to the IMF and according to Russian economic officials. That is a serious hit on the Russian economy. And if you believe that Mr. Putin has objectives that go beyond Ukraine, weakening Russia so it has more trouble pursuing its aggression in Ukraine and elsewhere is very much in Western interest. And from that point of view, I say sanctions have been very effective. And that's why Mr. Putin has tried on multiple occasions to somehow persuade the Europeans to not renew. Okay, just a very quick follow-up. I mean, it does seem that there is a, a fine line between punishing Russia and changing its behavior. Or by punishing it, do you weaken Russia in a way that... that there, there are at least two important objectives that we have here, or if we were smart, we would have here. One is to stop the Kremlin's aggression in Ukraine. And we can't say we've stopped it, but we've made it more painful. And we made it harder for them to pursue. That's objective one. Objective two, M Mr. Putin's provocations, whether he's telling the world that Kazakhstan is an artificial country, whether he's seizing an Estonian counterintelligence official in Estonia on the day that the NATO summit at Wales is concluded, whether he's seizing a Lithuanian ship in Baltic, Baltic Sea international waters, whether he's moving the line of demarcation in Georgia further away from Russian-occupied southern Ossetia into the rest of Georgia, he's sending a message that his aggressive intent goes beyond Ukraine. So when we take steps that impose costs for Russian aggression in Ukraine, we are sending a deterrent signal. I think we need additional <laughs> deterrent signals, but certainly we should not discard one which is working, albeit not as effectively as we would like. Um, Sergei's report makes a fairly strong case for expanding the financial sanctions. And he does, if you haven't read the report, please do. It's, it's very, very good. And it lays out a nice timeline and it explains why the financial sanctions um, were so effective you know, in, the in the short term, but that the effect was largely short term. Um, so if, if we agree that the financial sanctions, you know, should be expanded. Sergei is arguing that they could be modeled along the lines of those used against Iran and Libya, you know, such as freezing the foreign accounts of Russian state-owned banks um, and, you know, preventing them from making or receiving international payments. It also recommends adding Gazprom to the EU's 
financial sanctions list and imposing an embargo on oil exports by state-owned companies. And these are pretty drastic steps. And Liz, I was hoping that you could address whether these would, um, what they would involve, would, uh, what, whether they would work, and if there's um, some way that the Russian situation is just fundamentally <coughs> different from, uh, you know, from uh, Iran and Libya, given Europe's dependency on, on Russian energy. Sure, I'm happy to take a crack at that, but I will just say um, thank you for uh, having me here. It's an honor to be with you all and having this important conversation. I think at the outset I feel compelled to, I guess, pause for a minute and um, take off a little bit from what John was just saying and talk about um, not just this important question of whether or not they uh, these sanctions worked and what that then means about what <coughs> future policy should involve, uh, but thinking about um, spending a moment talking about the future political environment that we find ourselves in is this is such a conversation about whether they're useful and what should a ramp up look like is that useful from a practical standpoint given that there are many signals to indicate that in Europe and in this country there's momentum building towards rolling back sanctions in fact quite quickly in 2017 so we can, uh, and I do think it's worthwhile to discuss uh, what it could look like to roll up, uh, to impose more sanctions um, when and if political circumstances um, merit that. Uh, but we should pause and note that that, isn't, that doesn't seem to be the primary trajectory, except when it comes to the US Congress, which um, <clears throat> as a countervailing force may be interested in uh, maintaining the U.S. sanctions such as they are and even expanding them by contrast to what the signals are from uh, these building signals from uh, the incoming U.S. administration and, uh, and leaders of state in, in Europe. Uh, so I will now answer your question. <laughs> so uh, if Congress, uh, which may be the first most active interested um, constituency to look at these recommendations and write them into potential future legislation even yeah. in the next, early in the next Congress, I think there are some really good recommendations in here that I agree with very strongly. Certainly those at the level of uh, sending a strong signal to condemn uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. <clears throat> Um, and also a couple of other ones which may come across as technical but are so important, including um, requiring more disclosure of beneficial ownership information for uh, entities that are sanctioned um, and in general so, that, uh, to, so as to prevent some of what's been called legal restructuring or we could call it circumvention uh, by people on those lists and those that might be added further. But when it comes to the kind of aggressive measures that I think are designed by the author to be aggressive measures here um, in the energy and financial services space, there are some that are incredibly aggressive and um, I might even go so far as to say uh, dangerous or irresponsible if they were imposed particularly unilaterally. And that goes to some of the thinking about energy sanctions and where they go. And I would caution taking a page out of the Iran or Libya playbook on energy sanctions. Russia is a very different energy sector. It produces two and a half times more crude now than uh, Iran did at its peak. <clears throat> it supplies a tremendous amount of uh, customers that happen to be strong allies of the United States, treaty allies of the United States. 
And uh, in the oil market where there is just one market and a disruption of supply, potentially as imposed by sanctions, will cause a price increase for everyone, including um, all of us who uh, possibly um, took a cab to get here and that uses gas and such. So I can go into further detail, but maybe I'll just pause there if, uh, if anyone wants to talk about the practical realities of, of the future and imposing or rolling back sanctions. Okay. Um, and David, we talked about this a little bit before this, the session, sort of the, the, from your personal experience, the, the impact that the sanctions have had on, on business decisions, and Sergey has addressed this, the, the idea of political risk, moving beyond what the sanctions themselves spell out, things that haven't happened because of the sanctions. Um, if you could sure. address that a little bit. By the way, if that was handicapped English we heard from Sergey, I don't want to debate him in Russian. <laughs> that was very good. And the report has a lot of integrity and a lot of honesty to it. Uh, but I think Sergey put his finger particularly on the most telling thing, which is the unwritten sanctions. That is the impact uh, on assessment of political risk, legal risk, risk, reputational risk, and of course economic risk associated with further trade or business with a sanctioned party. And to the extent the sanctioned party is the subject to, and I have clients on both sides of the Atlantic, and I can, um, in a way I'm here more as a witness than a seer, I can confirm his intuition. He's right. Uh, there's great friction. Um, there's, uh, there's great handicapping. Uh, there's great reluctance. And by and large, there are decisions, uh, what is it Secretary Rumsfeld said, we don't know the unknown? Uh, 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 much of the impact of sanctions is unwritten and is the result of the political and the reputational risk associated with them. And the promise that uh, because we're so enamored with how effective the graduated sanctions were in Iran, <coughs> that there will be more of them. Um, and uh, if you ratchet things up over time, it will have a real and punishing impact, which could impact change. I think it's conventional wisdom that the Iranians finally came to the table on the nuclear accord because of sanctions, maybe, maybe abetted a little bit by the uh, drop in oil as well. Uh, the same could be true about the impact of the sanctions uh, in Russia, particularly in December 2014 when the ruble dropped 50 percent. Was it 50 percent? Yeah. 50 percent. Mm. Um, so, uh, the question of whether it worked, I think, is wrong, and maybe this is too nuanced an observation, but I think uh, it's a given that it had an adverse negative impact, which is demonstrable from things like a drop in GDP of one to one and a half percent, of course, according to the IMF. But as I said, I'm also wit here to be a witness to you that it's, uh, there's a lot that's unaccounted for, uh, which didn't happen uh, because of the political risk associated with doing business in Russia. Uh, I'm strongly in favor of the recommendation that if we don't get um, the changes uh, that we hoped uh, sanctions would bring about, and by the way, no one is delusional here. Sanctions alone are never sufficient. They are, however, in a global world necessary to begin to exercise leverage. And the question is how much leverage and what's a smart way to apply that leverage. Let me give you an idea of an exponential 
piece of leverage. Most people don't think about this. I know Elizabeth did when she was at Treasury. But if you focus on the insurance sector and the provision of insurance, if, infective, if effectively you say no insured risk can be covered for investment in Russia, what risk will be taken by foreign direct investment? The answer is zero. And with that simple focused impact, you have an exponential impact on at least a foreign direct investment in plants in Russia um, and, and in factories and in, in uh, hard bricks and mortar. Um, so you can be smart and you can ratchet it up. And uh, it's, it, it's important to note that the Iranian uh, sanctions, which eventually ended up totally unplugging, to use a word from Juan Zarati, unplugging the Iranian economy from all global commerce, particularly when we closed down SWIFT, the electronic interchange uh, clearinghouse uh, that handles all financial transactions, or 70% of the financial wire transfers in the world. Uh, they were unplugged. And, uh, and as a result, uh, they had to come to the table, and they came to the table. You can put aside whether you think the accord was um, uh, well-structured, but there's no question that sanctions brought them to the table. Could you have the same impact on a much larger economy in a much, much larger place? Probably not. Should you try? Sure you should try. There's got to be heated agreement in the room that the sanctions have an adverse impact, and if we're smart about graduating them, we'll make further uh, efforts uh, by Russia with regard to Ukraine in particular uh, unacceptable to Russians because of the cost. Um, and if they doubt the political will of the U.S., you can turn to Iran and say, it took us 10 years to do it, but over 10 years, particularly after 2006, we put together a multilateral group that, uh, that brought uh, Iran to its knees, actually. Last comment, again, uh, you have to be a political realist. Um, the geopolitical tectonic shifts in Western Europe uh, are apparent. <clears throat> I think the New York Times had a, quite an erudite article on it last Sunday on the front page where they noted uh, the success of uh, uh, Francois uh, Fallon in France, uh, and the polls say he's likely to win. And uh, a key part of his uh, philosophy is uh, to end Russian sanctions and to have a more accommodating, less confrontational approach uh, to Russia. There's some indication in polling that uh, the populace in Italy, who of course showed us their thinking uh, on Sunday in the referendum, uh, generally think that they don't want to face a two-front war world that is protecting uh, the Eastern uh, European nations from uh, Russia and at the same time dealing with immigration and terrorism and would rather ally themselves with the Russians with regard to the latter. So keeping uh, the multilateral uh, uh, character of the current sanctions is probably the single most challenging um, issue when addressing uh, whether Russian sanctions are effective. And uh, it's good that we're having this session because the new administration needs to address that. It should be one of their main, um, in my judgment, uh, and, uh, primary prompt political initiatives is to keep this coalition together 
with regard to the Russian sanctions and to follow the wisdom of Sergei's recommendations, which is uh, at least focus on financial sanctions and make them more harsh. And, yes. Um, if we're lucky, we're going to get dissent here. So, oh, no, I was no, going to associate okay. myself with yeah. your comments, actually, and, and try and push it further a little bit. And um, to the point of the, the value of maintaining uh, transatlantic unity and these sanctions, um, I, I think it's also useful to point out what the implications would be of disunity. So um, unpacking that a little bit further, and I'll offer a couple because I think they're so significant in this conversation. First, it is it damaging to the tool of sanctions, which uh, the United States and Europe have so effectively used in the last decade or 15 years, to um, set precedents that they are in fact arbitrary and capricious, and they can be imposed or removed without actually uh, uh, realizing the behavior change that they're designed to create. And that means that in the future, in it, as well as a loss, in this case, a loss of economic and political leverage without gaining um, any of the, the political ground they were designed to gain. So that makes them, I fear, less available and less useful in the future. And beyond that, it sends an incredibly strong signal that the U.S. and the Europe and Europe, traditional security allies and economic partners, in so many regards, are much less capable or incapable of getting together, and from a policy perspective, on some of the most pressing, highest priority national security issues for them. And in this world of uh, great power competition and uh, where there are numerous security challenges on which they have worked together, that's very concerning and has implications beyond just uh, this issue in Russia and its foreign policy. If I could offer a slightly contrary note, uh, I think it's, well, we, it's likely or almost certain that sanctions are going to be renewed this winter. And I think there's a, a very good chance they'll be renewed next summer. And let me explain why. Uh, concretely. One, I think the Trump administration is not going to monkey with sanctions. Uh, the people that the president-elect has named as national security figures all understand the dangers of Putin's aggressive agenda and the need to withstand it. And as Liz already mentioned, Congress has made clear its willingness to impose sanctions by legislation. The president has to take steps in March to renew executive orders uh, which have put down sanctions. If that does not happen, it's highly likely that Congress will move on, on legislation. And there's going to be a strong majority on both sides of the aisle in favor of sanctions, and perhaps a veto-proof majority. And for those of you who know the history of Russian-American relations, would recall a similar situation in the 1970s when the Nixon administration did not want to pay attention to human rights issues, and as a result, they got the Jackson-Vanik legislation. So I think that the Trump administration will not move in, an, in what I consider a weakening way on sanctions. Regarding Europe itself, it's true that there are populist movements that could push policy in very different directions. It's true that Mr. Fillon in France has a naive view of Mr. Putin. It's also true that for Mr. Fillon as a Gaullist, relations with Germany remain preeminent. 
as long as Merkel is strong, and of course she has an election a year from now, as long as she is strong, I don't think a Fillon-led France is going to move in a serious way to remove sanctions. And if the Trump administration comes in and endorses the sanctions policy, that'll be a sharp uh, shot across the bow of a weak-minded leadership in Paris. I, I want to be clear. I have no doubt the Trump administration is going to be very muscular about sanctions. Um, he, I don't think I need that. Um, yes, you do. Do I? No, I got one. Oh, I, you know, it's an extraordinary power, not to get too technical when you take a look at the International Economic Emergency Powers Act. It's extraordinary. The president can declare a national emergency, national security emergency, an economic emergency, uh, and prohibit certain trade and business uh, and in as wide a scope as you can imagine. Uh, he's going to use that in the trade area, he's going to use it in the immigration area, I predict, and he's going to use it certainly in the foreign relations area uh, to uh, avoid what he also wants to avoid, which is military intervention, and he's been very clear about that. So uh, not only will he uh, maintain a muscular front on sanctions, he, he will be, what's the right word, I was going to say he's the most sanctioned president. No, he will use sanctions the most. Uh, Maybe Democrats will sanction him, but uh, um, otherwise, uh, he's going to be very muscular, I agree. But uh, we, can't, we can't fool ourselves. Western Europe may not go along with them. And unilateral sanctions are usually a lousy idea. To, a question. Uh, to strengthen Speak the sanctions. Up, okay, to, to. I have this microphone on. Here, hold, so hold it to your. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Does that help? Okay. Um, to, the question is, if you want to strengthen the sanctions on Russia, do you need to actually physically strengthen them, or what if you do more within in the implementation and the enforcement as is spelled out a little bit in the report? Would that, would that have the same effect, or do you need to impose much harsher sanctions? Well, I, can, I, I think there's, there's a world of options if, if policymakers were going down that road. and. Uh, I think what you're asking is, are more authorities needed? I think there are ample authorities, and our official lawyer on the panel can, can help me out here, but um, there, are, uh, there are plenty of authorities that already exist that could be used uh, to, to go after, uh, to, to expand these, in practice, to expand these sanctions. So the sanctions evaders, EO, for example, I think could be used more aggressively to go after this legal restructuring or, or um, regulatory arbitrage that has helped people get out from under sanctions or uh, get out from exposure to sanctions, um, taking a more aggressive approach towards um, uh, uh, acting for or on behalf of or material support. So some of the prongs that are written to these authorities that could, if used more aggressively, could expand them. Of course, you can create new authorities. And I think that's where this report is going, is creating new authorities. and. Oftentimes, political leaders like to do that because it has a, a very strong signaling effect, which is, of course, one of the ways that I think sanctions were actually very effective, as pointed out in this report. Uh, and so even when they are sometimes creating redundant uh, authorities that aren't ne strictly necessary to expand in practice the effect of sanctions, that's often a tool of choice for policymakers who want to strongly signal 
uh, condemnation or displeasure or a tough stance. Uh, it, it, it seems to me that uh, if we talk about uh, sanctions avoidance, circumvention of sanctions, usually it is about personal sanctions. Yeah, so it's when uh, people, Russian people who are businessmen or who are under sanctions, uh, transfer their assets, sell their assets to their relatives, to their friends, and so on. But altogether, those sanctions are not very influential. Of course, of course they are harmful for this particular person. But all in all, I was able to find the number of $600 million of frozen assets, according to personal sanctions, out of which uh, three-fourths, 450, is the financial transaction of one particular businessman in one particular French bank. So in fact, personal sanctions on the financial side, they do not work. And of course, they may be strengthened, they may be, these uh, loopholes may be closed, but it will uh, harm particular individuals, not the economy. If we talk uh, about increasing financial costs of Russian aggression, that should be sanctions against Russia Federation as it is, or Russian banks and companies. Okay. Um, Sergey, along those lines, one of the ways that the U.S. and the EU differ on the sanctions is that the U.S. has targeted people very close to Putin, whereas the EU not as strongly. No, right. there is, no, 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 that's, that's not are, correct. Are they, they, they are more or less similar. There are some, some the discrepancies. There are some, some, some discrepancies both ways. <coughs> uh, some people are sanctioned under the EU, some people are, sanction, are sanctioned under the US, but normally it's the same, the okay. more, more or less right. similar list but of the people. EU, the, the US was quicker on that. Yes? Uh, no, no, okay, no. Right. Once again, <laughs> once, once again look, look on the schedule. In, in, yeah, uh, okay. Europeans were the first who imposed sanctions. No, no, but on, yeah. on people like Sechin and, and Rotenberg. Uh, yes, but for example, EU has imposed sa uh, sanctions on business in Crimea in summer yeah. well, uh, 2014, while the US imposed the same sanctions in December 2014. Yeah. Okay, but all right. Um, are we ready to go to questions? Uh, there was a question of microphones. Do we have microphones? There's only, only one microphone. Shortage. That's so, essential. <laughs> lack of microphone. That's lack of technology. What does it mean? Um. <laughs> Thank you. Herb Rose, um, how much does the effectiveness of <laughs> sanctions depend upon the popularity of Putin at home? Uh, his popularity I believe has been consistently over 80%, uh, at least from the reports that we get. Uh, so unless those, uh, um, his popularity drops at home, will the sanctions be effective? Uh, Russian people, Russian people, uh, they're strongly influenced by propaganda. And 85% uh, of Russian population, the similar as uh, Putin's rating, support rating, they receive information from federal TV channels. Russia is a TV-dependent country where only three or four channels uh, deliver information. All other channels are for amusement, uh, for films, for TV shows, and so on. All four channels that deliver information, they are either state-controlled or controlled by Gazprom or Putin's crony Rotenberg. Kovalchuk, sorry. Yeah, so that's the, the Russian people receive information only which the Kremlin sends to them, delivers to them. And the information from Kremlin is that sanctions 
were imposed to punish us for our independence. Uh, what do you think? What, what is the dependence of Putin's rating because of this slogan? Of course, people support Putin because the West, ugly West, wants to punish Russia. Moreover, moreover, Russian people believes that the Russian counter-sanctions is a ban on import of European, American, New Zealand, Canadian food is a sanction imposed by the West as well. That's it. Perception is reality. But, you know, it's, it's a great question. If we can figure out a smart sanction that makes the common man or woman in Russia ticked off, let's say a shortage of a certain kind of food or a shortage of a certain kind of convenience, and, and the regime begins to worry that we shouldn't have ticked off people, then the sanctions would be more potent. But, uh, you know, I submit to you, give us that smart sanction. Okay, please, ban, ban import of the, the, the export of iPhones, iPads, Samsungs, and all the rest to Russia. No, it you be, can have it, all the Samsungs you want. No, 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 be, no because, 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 because Samsung, uh, Samsung 7, Samsung 7, uh, but look, okay. all, the, all those high-tech uh, gadgets, they're dependent on uh, U.S. technology, U.S. patents. So they, if you ban all of this, it is definitely, I fully agree. I fully agree. Caviar. 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 <laughs> oh, it's Iran. Caviar, it's Iran. Do we have microphone? Hi. Uh, Ligatum Institute. Uh, Sergey, congratulations on the brilliant report. I hope conclusions are listened by Congress, if not administration. And two quick questions. Uh, um, firstly, uh, uh, I wonder uh, how, would, how do you define sanctions being effective? Because uh, among Russian opposition, uh, there, is, there are two divides. Uh, I've been to, uh, recently to Vilnius Forum and Be Berlin Forum, whether they should be personal sanctions or sectoral sanctions. Uh, and uh, by effectiveness, uh, some people thought that Russia should get out of Eastern Ukraine and Crimea, which is maximum scenario, or as some of the people uh, at the, in the panel discussion mentioned, just stop future aggression. So what is effective for you? And second question, um, for, in my view, Russia ha has been very successful in circumventing sanctions on all levels. Uh, maybe B plus on financial sections through third-tier banks, through Asia, through syndicated loans. Even Gunvor opened its office uh, a few months ago in Houston with a multi-billion, uh, with half-billion uh, loan. Uh, and uh, uh, on personal sanctions, as Sergei mentioned, uh, but also uh, with oil and gas, um, Russian production is hitting through the roof and they don't really need Arctic or offshore mainly covered in the sanctions. So um, do you think the circum this, do you agree that Russia circumvents sanctions well? And if yes, why is that? Is that deliberate policy from the West just because there is no other way to align Europe and the US or is it because of impotence of Western sanctions? Thank you. You want, you want to try first? Sure. Can I use the mic? May I use the mic? Thank you. Actually, we may share this one. So on the, on the question of uh, circumvention of sanctions, there are um, these sanctions, let it not go without being said, that these sanctions are, were never designed to collapse the Russian economy. There's plenty of... Um, I don't want to use the word loopholes because they weren't meant to be, they weren't discovered subsequently to be loopholes, though I think there are some of those too. But there are, uh, th they were designed to be 
narrow and targeted, which means that there's actually a lot of leeway. There, there are things that are grandfathered in or that weren't covered. Uh, there's, I use the phrase, I've not used it three times, legal restructuring, because it's not, it's not, I think you could perhaps take an aggressive legal interpretation to go after it as circumvention, but plenty of it is not illegal. It is, uh, it is just managing with what's there. And some of the, uh, to take an example from the energy, um, uh, the energy context, definitions matter a lot. So the definition of shale energy, right? So um, how much of Russian energy production that affects turns on how you understand that term. And in fact, the way it is defined is very narrow, and it could have been de uh, defined in a much broader way, which would have had a much bigger effect on the um, on Russian energy production, but uh, it was defined quite narrowly in subsequent regulation. So that wasn't a, it's not a matter of circumvention in that instance. That was actually, uh, though, though there is circumvention, but that was, that's, uh, you could call it a loophole or not, but it's gigantic. You can drive a truck through it. Yeah, I don't know if this is defining, but uh, to the extent there is circumvention, um, it has two negative drags on the economy. Uh, one is it certainly increases transactional cost. Uh, and the second is, uh, and I hope this doesn't sound naive, it's very corrosive. It's, it's, it's very corrosive because of its corruption. And it affects the entire supply chain. And finally, uh, we have a responsibility if that we, the U.S. government in this case, and, and the European Union enforcement authorities, that when we learn of true circumvention, uh, circumvention uh, we try to punish it. Uh, and uh, one of the most powerful ways to punish it is to punish people who are not in Russia who facilitate the circumvention. Hence the focus on financial intermediaries or, or otherwise, which is a long focus of the Treasury Department and the Department of Justice. Um, could you take the microphone to the gentleman in the back who's had his hand up? Thank you. Uh, thank you. It's uh, Dana Marshall with Transnational Strategy Group. Um, I want to put out uh, a uh, sort of like a hypothesis here, and maybe you can speak to it. Uh, I've, got, I've had a lot of experience in government and outside on sanctions, and a lot of this seems like a little bit of sort of recounting past history. Before we got very serious about Iran sanctions, the real purpose of those, before Sasada and that sort of thing, was really to provide, I think, a political signal. Uh, we didn't really affect much of their behavior, but it pro provided us something to be able to say we did. When we got serious about it, when the Europeans got serious about it especially, we had what uh, the gentleman from the Treasury Department correctly describes as arguably the most successful sanctions regime that we've had. Um, now, the, but we needed that kind of international cooperation to be able to do it. So one question is, do the Europeans really want to do the kind of vigorous sanctions regime on Russia as they did on Iran? But even beyond that, let me just focus a little bit more of this conversation. I think what we're talking about, and what I think what John Herbst is talking about, is not deterring Russia from getting into NATO areas. Hopefully, Article 5 does that. We're not talking about using this tool for that. If we are, that's pretty scary right there. What we're talking about, I think, and John, correct me if I'm we're talking about deterring Russians, increasing the cost to them of moving into non-NATO uh, areas. 
The question, I guess, for this panel is, does anyone really believe that the kind of pain that reasonably we could expect to put on Russia, and given what I think Sergei said in terms of the strong support for Putin, and the thought that the problem is, you know, the sanctions, not, it's, it's not because of Putin's actions, it's because of the West wanting to bring Russia down. Does anybody really believe, honestly, that sanctions, given what they could reasonably be created, could really stop him from doing what he wants to do in a lot of these non-NATO areas? Yes. Yes, I do believe. I do believe that uh, there is a set of sanctions that will make economic price, financial costs of Russian aggressive policy enormously high. And it will be well below the Iranian level. For example, a prohibit uh, supply of all equipment and services for hydrofraction for Russian state-controlled oil companies. Not for gas, for oil. Russian oil companies, state-controlled oil companies produce more than 50% of oil in Russia. And in hydrofraction of oil, not shale, it's normal, in this, uh, conventional oil, they use 85 to 95% of imported services and components. Just imagine what happens. The production of oil will decline slightly. It will be, I do not believe that it will decline up to 50%, but if, we, if the oil production in Russia will decline by 10 to 15% in three to five years, okay, that will be enormous financial cost for Russia. Then uh, I, I would disagree that uh, in the Iranian case it was not the ban on use of SWIFT, it was the ban of use of correspondent accounts. It was SWIFT, SWIFT is a mean of communication. You may use SWIFT to send messages, make a payment. You may use telephone calls, you may use faxes or telexes. So it's, it's doable. It's like if you have no mobile phone, you can use fixed line. It's less convenient, but you may do it. You may survive. But if you prohibit to use correspondent accounts, that means no one Iranian bank may settle in US dollars or in euros. No one Russian bank, for example, may impose a ban on use of correspondent accounts for two Russian big banks, three Russian big banks. Yeah, it's Sberbank, VTB, and Gazprom Bank. That's it. That's the collapse of the Russian financial system. Yeah, and the, the, the collapse of many, many Russian business companies that are dealing in the rest of the world because they are export-oriented, including export of weapons. So if you want to do it, if you want the price to make economic price, financial cost of Russian aggressive policy high, you may do it. It's the question of how much should, how high should be this price? Yeah, how far are you ready to go? Once again, in my assessment, nowadays it is 5% of Iranian level of sanctions. So a long way to go. And it will definitely change the situation. And prohibit the uh, export of iPhones and Samsungs. It will be the most convenient for Russian people. They will determine that something is wrong with Putin. Um, I, I might differ in um, tactics for what it would look like to turn up the heat. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, I think the question, can you create enough economic pain through sanctions to change Russian behavior. I, I share the view that sanctions should never be the only tool to try and uh, change behavior. And, and we've been, as is outlined in this report, there's a combination of uh, NATO activity um, sanctions. I don't think it was discussed in the report, but certainly also there's some carrots in there too in the form of 
um, aid packages to Ukraine and an attempt to um, loan guarantees, et cetera. There's, there's a combination of tools that have been used here. So, But can you create enough impact to change? Um, I think the answer is it's possible and you could turn it up. However, the real underlying issue there is can you achieve the multilateral uh, agreement in order to to impose that kind of economic pain, and that's the really big question. That's what seems to me um, more, much more difficult than can you create the measures to create the pain. So for example, to go after these Russian state banks, think about the exposure of European financial institutions, as well as American ones, to those same banks. Think of this for France. I mean, they're incredibly exposed. So it would be quite difficult to create that kind of, much more difficult to create the international uh, coherence to create that policy. But you're quite right. As Elizabeth said earlier, these sanctions were structured to permit substantial commerce, but to show there is a pain associated with what you did, don't do more of it, and reconsider. Otherwise, we're gonna graduate the pain. That's what I think the strategy was. The direct answer to your question is, Sergei said, said, there are nuclear uh, options in economic sanctions. You could bar them from the U.S. financial system in total, and you could actually bar foreign persons for doing business with them upon pain of being prohibited for doing trade with us. They're called secondary sanctions, effectively. <laughs> but no one wants to go that far, and it, I must say, it's relatively untested but for Iran. So the only real... Libya. Libya as well. Oh, uh, okay. I'm not that old. Uh, <laughs> right. Libya. Okay. That's an easier economy to deal with. South Africa. South Africa as well. Yes. Yes, South it was. Africa. South Africa is was. Yeah. It was a slower Korea. process, but very, very comprehensive. Okay. Thank you very much. My name is David Nikoradze. I represent Georgian television station Rustavito in Washington, D.C. Uh, Ukrainian delegation and the U.N. requested U.N. Security Council to discuss the situation in Georgia and Russia's decision to create joint uh, Russian Abkhaz military force. I was wondering if you, if you could give me your reaction on that, please. How effective can be discussion in the Security Council? Uh, this issue, we know Russia has veto and can just veto any, any resolution at the Council. Thank you. You gave the answer. You gave the answer. If Russia has veto right, so you may discuss as long as you want, but no decision. Is it effective? On the one hand, yes, as sanctions. On the other hand, no. What you could do, because the Russian veto power in the Security Council, is take it to the General Assembly. And we've seen that happen um, in the context of uh, Russian aggression in the near abroad. Uh, and so you, you, get it, you could probably get a General Assembly resolution um, with a substantial majority supporting, uh, providing some support for Georgia, but it wouldn't be more than that. Roxana Budratenka, independent analyst. I wanted to ask um, if uh, the uh, sanctions are maintained at the status quo, uh, if the sanctions are maintained at the status quo, uh, do you think uh, there will be enough accumulative effect of these sanctions, of the ban on access to funding to change Russia's behavior eventually? No. 
No. No, no. Uh, if sanctions are maintained at the current level for 10 years, uh, it will not cause any decline in Putin's popularity. He will stay in power as long as he wants. And that will not cause the increase of dissatisfaction of Russian people, but it will increase gradually, gradually the technological level of Russian economy. So the Russian economy should de will degradate, yeah, and uh, in order to recover it, it will massive, much more massive investment will be required. But it will be 10 years from now. It's not a short run. But, but, but again, if you understand that Mr. Putin's aggressive designs go beyond Ukraine, weakening his ability to pursue those designs is, to my mind, a strategic objective, or should be a strategic objective, of the United States and Western countries. Good evening. I'm Ariel Cohen. I'm with the Atlantic Council, and I just got back from Moscow. And one of the things I was looking at in Moscow in my conversations with the broad variety of Russians, is the effect of sanctions. And I must say that from the anecdotal evidence, uh, the Moscow elites, uh, pro-Putin elites, um, don't care about the sanctions. What's happening in the provinces where many, many reports I heard, things are not good, the salaries are something like $250 a month per person, $250 a month for doctors and teachers. Uh, so the question is, how do you target, if, if you're thinking about future sanctions, how you make the Moscow elite to pay attention and not be so smug? Because their lifestyle um, is not affected. Uh, everybody is, has Christmas plans in Italy and in Western Europe. Um, and uh, in terms of oil production, oil production is projected, if you saw the Mitrova report, oil production is projected to go up till 2020. And the question is what's happening beyond that. Um, so 1% of the GDP, 1.5% of the GDP in the country that survived uh, Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev and Brezhnev and collectivization in World War II, they don't care. So we need to get more creative. Please comment. This is a woefully incomplete answer, but you mentioned uh, a Christmas trip to Italy. I, I can tell you, when I was in the government, one of the most powerful tools, I actually learned there are no small gestures in this field. There are no small gestures. One of the most powerful tools was to effectively bar travel by elite families anywhere. It does impact them. It embarrasses the father when he tells the child, we can't go there. They won't let us go there. And she asks why. I, I'll just add, I, I don't think there's a, there's no limit to the creativity for the potential for sanctions and um, the, the, the kind that restrict personal travel, um, uh, restrict, I'm not suggesting that this is where they should go because this sort of uh, verges into the uh, concerns about um, limiting useful people to people or humanitarian kind of activity. But um, when uh, students can't study in the United States or abroad, when they can't go on their vacations, that has a, that has a, that people notice that. But beyond that, I mean, there, there are, there are a variety of things that I think could have an effect. The, the question is just, again, can they be multilateralized? Because of course, if they're not, they don't have teeth. 
Hi, my name is Jim Lucier with Capital Alpha Partners. I don't want to ask a really naive question, but um, we do seem to think of stasis and policy right now. There's a Trump administration coming with a lot of unknowns and unknown and unknowns. Are there any scenarios in which two to three years from now you could see some sort of a grand bargain in which we do some set of agreements with Russia that allow sanctions to roll off, perhaps giving everyone a face-saving exit from the situation of Ukraine? Yes, why not? Policy is about cynicism. So how, how cynical are politicians? They may make a deal, uh, like uh, it was done with Hitler in uh, 38. So you may sign a deal. Or you may, it may be a deal like between Brezhnev and Nixon in 72. It was a deal. So rather cynical, but both sides understood that it's better to prevent nuclear, uh, nuclear catastrophe, nuclear resistance, nuclear, nuclear containment, just, but to stay, stay, make a step back. So there is a, I, I, I believe that policy is about deal-making. That's true. That's true. And uh, to a certain extent, on the one hand, uh, it may help Mr. Trump because he said he's a deal-maker. He knows how to make deals. On the other hand, uh, it may help him as well because Putin is a proponent of zero-sum game. So for him, any international agreement is about deal. I give something to you, you give something to me. And we should assess this as equal exchange. So if such a deal will maybe agreed, why not? Why not? It's possible you could have a deal along the lines that Sergei just mentioned, which is essentially a deal where the, the United States concedes Ukraine to Russia's sphere of influence. But I think that would only happen if, in fact, the things that missed the things Mr. Trump said during the campaign represent his actual policy. But considering his policy team, considering where the United States Congress is, and considering the fact that this issue is of no real importance to the success of his presidency, but could get in the way of its success, I think it's highly unlikely that he would move in that direction. And keep in mind that he fancies himself a deal maker. And the deal that you've described, or that Sergei described, is essentially Mr. Trump giving Mr. Putin what he wants. What type of triumph is that for Trump the deal maker? Uh, there's another possible deal, which is how I would like to see things develop, and I'm not certain it will, but I think the odds of this are better than the American accommodation. And that is where Mr. Putin realizes that he is stuck in a quagmire in the east of Ukraine, that he is losing Russian soldiers, and that is a political liability at home, that his economy is stuttering more than it should because of sanctions and related Western skepticism about investing in Russia, and that he realized it's time for him to cut his losses, and the deal that could be cut would involve true Russian departure from the east of Ukraine, and a recognition that the Crimea is an issue which will not be resolved and we're not going to fight about it although the sanctions that we have currently in place on Crimea, the non-recognition of Russian annexation of Crimea remains in place. So you essentially have a, a Baltic, a pre-1991 Baltic solution to the Crimea problem. And some people argue that Mr. Putin cannot make that deal because he has empowered nationalists in Russia. I think that the Russian media, which has persuaded the Ukrainian, excuse me, the Russian people that there are fascists in Kiev, which is nonsense, could also persuade them that Mr. Putin has served Russia's interests even as he gets out of Ukraine. Um, <clears throat> hi, I'm Volodymyr Muzilov, uh, Embassy of Ukraine. Uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, underline that we highly appreciate all Western support, uh, especially regarding sanctions policy on Russia. 
and uh, we see uh, Western uh, policy on sanctions as an effective tool uh, to uh, stop for the escalation of Russian aggression. But uh, if we're uh, trying to think about uh, change behavior of Russia, I guess uh, we should think about uh, for the strengthening of sanctions. And uh, what is the most important, uh, any lift of the sanctions against Russia uh, should be in direct correspondence with uh, uh, Russian implementation of the Minsk. So uh, any, any lift or any softening of sanctions sh will be a huge uh, signal, a terrible signal to the, not only to Russia, but to other dictatorships around the world that uh, everything could be done without. Yes, it's not a question, but a remark. Thank you. Hello, Brian Bonner from the Keep Post. I flew all the way from Ukraine for this for this uh, this panel. I have actually a kind of a, a two-part question. One is, does it what can Ukraine do to improve the chances of? I mean, internally, it's politicians to improve the chances of strengthening or maintaining sanctions. And two, is there any chance that Trump, given his unpredictability, unpredictability will actually take a tougher line in terms of supporting Ukraine financially and with defensive weapons? Thanks. Uh, there are two things Ukraine could do to increase a Western support for it, especially as you have a Trump administration coming into power and you have unpredictable developments in France. One, of course, is to do more on reform. Because Ukraine's enemies like to claim that Ukraine is a corrupt, failed state. Both things are largely false. There is a problem of corruption, but it's certainly not a failed state. And there has been significant reform progress. But more, more progress would be helpful. The second thing is that, uh, and this is something I've advocated, and my friends in, in Kyiv don't necessarily agree, although some do, that Ukraine, to make life easier for Chancellor Merkel to maintain sanctions, should use his, the, the president of Ukraine should use his influence in the Rada to pass the election law for the LNR and the DNR. It should be occupied areas by Russia. It should be highly conditioned on circumstances that guarantee a fair vote, but passing that law would cut the legs out from under the appeasers, especially in Western Europe. And it could be done while protecting Ukraine's vital interests. Those are two things that would truly help. Uh, John, I would go further, and I fully support this conditional uh, uh, approach, and I advocate it in Kiev as well. And I go further, I say, okay, look guys, you may even run elections in LNR and DNR, but the power of these authorities is conditional on the control of Kiev over borders. So it's, it's conditional. Yes, Ukraine may implement all preconditions for the Minsk, except of the empower of these people. Thank you. Uh, hi, Marcus. May Trump be tougher? Could, could Trump actually end up being tougher than Obama? Sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, go on. <laughs> sure, but this is beyond my ken. You got to understand that. But uh, we could we could give them more sophisticated military uh, assistance. 
I think that Trump's instincts, while he's against military intervention, his instincts are muscular. And I don't think that he would respond as weakly as President Obama to the Russian military planes that are coming very close to our planes and our ships, to the turning off of the Russian trains transponders, which means that possibility of an accident go up. Uh, during the Cold War, we responded very um, demonstratively to such provocations, and uh, the Obama administration has pr basically let these things slide. I don't think he would. And if Mr. Putin is so unwise as to continue this, once Trump becomes president, he may find himself unpleasantly surprised. Do we have some more questions? Yeah, May, uh, Marcus Matthiasen from, from Denmark, um, and maybe you've already answered this question. It's a little bit in line with, with some of the others. Um, knowing very well that U.S. foreign policy is, is, is not based on decisions in, in Brussels, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the EU will actually make their decision on, on extensing, extending sanctions um, in December or January, which means that the new administration, uh, when they take over, uh, the EU decision of extending sanctions had already been taken. So if we're talking about Western unity, if anyone was to break that unity, it wouldn't actually be the EU, it would be the US, at least in the short term, because those ex uh, sanctions would be in place until summer. Uh, would that, do you think? Uh, not gonna happen. Yeah. Not gonna happen. John was right. We will support these sanctions for at least another six to nine months. Questions. Um, we have about ten minutes left, and I was, uh, if there are no more questions, I was wondering whether Sergey or the panelists would like to address. They feel like maybe there's something that hasn't been addressed during the discussion. Um, the question. <laughs> yes. No question. Hello, uh, my name is Jose Miguel Pulido. I work at Mitsui USA. Thank you very much for the phenomenal discussion. Uh, how much does the situation in Syria play into the calculus of Trump? Uh, Trump is far more concerned with the situation in Syria and potentially sees that as a point of collaboration with Russia. Um, could that be part of a potential deal uh, where we're lower your sanctions, we'll collaborate in Syria. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, people have been talking about Syria as a Russian card to play to get the West to acquiesce in his Ukraine aggression since at least September of last year. And in fact, Syria as an issue has worked exactly against him. So, for example, in October of this year, the EU had its annual, its regular summit leaders. And the Italian Prime Minister Rienzi, or the former Italian Prime Minister Rienzi, put, put U.S., excuse me, put Russian-EU relations on the agenda, hoping to have a conversation which would lead ultimately to the easing of sanctions in the spring, or the next summer. Instead, the conversation was dominated by EU criticism of Moscow's Syria policy and a call for putting sanctions on Russia because of its Syria policy. Now, regarding Trump and Syria, it's true he has put more emphasis on this or on dealing with ISIS than on dealing with Kremlin aggression in Ukraine. Uh, it's also true that 
Mr. Pu Mr. Trump's objective in Syria is to take out ISIS. Mr. Putin's objective in Syria is to ensure Assad stays in power. And Putin has not gone after ISIS at all or to any significant extent. So unless Mr. Putin is willing to do something he is not willing to do in the past, there's no, there's no quid for the Russians to give Trump. And uh, so I think it's highly unlikely. I think there'll be some playing with this concept, but I think it's highly unlikely. One, two, three, maybe all together. Thank you, uh, David Colton. Uh, my question is for Sergey and Denny on the panel, who uh, feel so inclined. Uh, Sergey, uh, I'm wondering if the greatest single effective sanction on Russia is not the Putin government, rather than the West. And by that, I mean there is this notion that if in some distant nine-month, 18-month window sanctions are lifted, that suddenly Russia will return back to 2012 or 2013. But we know in 2013, even without sanctions, Russia and without oil falling through the floor, as Kudra noted, the recession was kicking in already then. Even without sanctions, aren't the two most important questions still in the Kremlin, Kuda Ikak? For example, is it Kudrin's plan? Glazyev's plan? What is the role of the Russian economy going forward? Even without sanctions, this is a fundamentally broken economy. Uh, pension needs, the things you know far better than I could ever recite. But what are your thoughts that Putin himself, the Putin structure, is actually the single most effective sanction on Russia? <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to launch the discussion on Russian economy, and uh, I would be brief, I would be brief. Putin said he wants Russian economy to grow let's say, faster than the global economy by 2020. Uh, it's normal. It's normal because a, any economy, a, the desire of any economy, of the, any government, is to allow its economy to grow according to the, its potential. The potential of Russian economy may be 35 to 4% a year. It's more or less uh, uh, common wisdom what, what Russia can, can get. Uh, nowadays, the growth is zero. It's easy to say it's stagnation. So, me personally, I split this four percentage point gap into three parts, and they are more or less equal. One is sanctions, uh, second is institutional problems, that is really institutional problems within economy, like uh, uh, competition, antitrust, tariffs regulation, bureaucratical pressure, and so on and so on. And one third is property rights protection. It's about political reform. So, Putin may do something in the second part, in institutional reforms, and he is more or less managing this process, at least according to World Bank, Russian, Russian doing businesses, ranking is going up, up and up. But Putin is doing nothing with sanctions, and Putin doing nothing with uh, political reforms and property rights. So that makes Russian economy to grow within 1.5% uh, growth. Isn't good, it's better than stagnation, it's better than decline, but that's it. Yes, Putin is a sanction on Russia. Long term, unfortunately, another 10 years. We had a couple other. Yeah. 
Uh, Elaine Sereo, Associate Rector of Wisconsin International Ukraine University in Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, since, as sort of a close up here, uh, this has been very interesting. Uh, would any of you like to, you know, look into a crystal ball for a moment? And we haven't even started the Trump presidency yet. We've already seen a great deal of shifting from one person to another, speculation as to who's going to be whom, secretary of this, secretary of that. Uh, we have some very fixed people already in place. Mr. Bannon is his uh, advisor, and then uh, Lieutenant General Flynn uh, who, for his national security advisor, and uh, General Mattis for the Secretary of Defense. Uh, two of those people, uh, 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 Lieutenant General Flynn, is coming under a lot of scrutiny right now for false news that's being had been presented before during the elections, and presently even. And also, he has a lot of, uh, one could say, some baggage, having been on RT and being host by RT and spoken in Russia. So, uh, and then given that General Mattis, I, it's been said, um, has a, a lot of uh, disagrees, let's say, with Mr. F with uh, Lieutenant General Flynn extensively. So, as things might play out, does anyone like to suggest as maybe how this might actually turn around and be more support for Ukraine, if only because of less support for Russia? Uh, my understanding, which is not complete, is that uh, Lieutenant General Flynn understands that we have a security problem in the Kremlin that we have to manage, and that uh, support for Ukraine is part of that. And I think that's true of, of the entire Trump team as so far named in the national security area. I'm not speaking about um, Steve Bannon. I have no idea what his views are. But uh, I think that there's not much difference in a general way between Flynn and Mattis and KT McFarland, his deputy, on these questions, and for that matter, Vice President-elect Mike Pence. I'll also tell you, on behalf of the Atlantic Council, an invitation was extended to the general to come over here and be briefed. He accepted it. I don't know, did that meeting take place yet? Not yet. So within a fortnight, he's coming over here, and John's going to tell him what to do. <laughs> I'm not even in that meeting, so. Good. So I think we're to a conclusion. Thank you all very much. And